finished Romans for the time being. We made it through the first eight chapters, and we are switching gears now. And we're having a, what we might call a one-off, where we're going to talk about prayer this week. We might do it next week, but my aspiration for us and Corby's as well is that we would we talk about prayer this week, and then for the next few weeks, we're going to do as we often do in the fall and readdress and reacquaint ourselves with our anchoring aspirations as a church, our raison d'etre, as the Nathan Arizona might say. You should consider yourself culturally illiterate if you don't understand that. Raising Arizona. Read the Bible and learn Raising Arizona. What is our raison d'etre? Why are we? What are we for? And so we're going to talk about that a bit. And so in advance of that, though, we're going to talk about this undercurrent, this movement of God's electricity through us that empowers all that we do called prayer. And we're going to talk about it because even though we, we hear lots of things about prayer and we've, most of us in here have done a good bit of praying at varying levels and varying kinds of intensities with varying levels of success, it is something that the Bible makes a great bit of fuss about that to us often feels like a whole lot of nothing. And that is the rub in so much of the spiritual life. That something that seems so important, so vital, so crucial, so evident, for instance, in the life of the Son of God who was fully God and fully man, one of the things apparently about him was that he was all the time praying at the most inconvenient times. He had no clear sense of the value of a dollar. He had no clear sense of how you actually get things done in the world. He had no Twitter following. He had no social media presence. He did not even write a book. And yet we are talking about him today. But we're told in the Gospel of Luke, for instance, and in Mark, of Jesus often retiring to lonely places to pray. There's a recognition that in our own cosmic loneliness, as image bearers, if we're going to cooperate God in the healing of the world, if we're going to actually adequately represent the God who's remaking us in his image, as people who have charge of the earth to steward it, to be guardians of it, to let Christ's love run wild through it, We have to have something to do with God. And we see Jesus doing that all the time. Spending the night in prayer. Being at prayer and his disciples coming to him and saying, Where where have you been? We've got a full slate today. We've already released it to the press. You're supposed to be in front of the podium in 15 minutes. And we find out he's been praying. And then you hear things, weird things, like Dave Connish just read from the psalmist who speaks about having bitter adversaries, who speaks about being stabbed in the back, vilified, ostracized, alienated, and alone. And he don't take it to the streets. He's the king. And he consoles himself not by saying, well, if I say it's legal, it's legal. I'm the president. 
Instead, he says, but I'm a man of prayer. (laughs) What a weird thing to say. No sane person in our times would console themselves at their business in the middle of vast social problems in times of economic tumult or, or personal travail would console themselves by saying, well, I don't have any money and I'm stuck in a miry pit of depression and at least my business is banking, is tanking, not banking, tanking, the opposite of banking. But at least I'm a person of prayer. Not many people think that way. But I would like us to. And it's interesting as we get here to Luke chapter 11, this famous passage, the disciples have obviously seen Jesus pray. They've obviously been aware of his interaction with God. And so they say, won't you teach us how to do that? They know he's the prophet who has come into the world that was long expected, mighty in word and in deed. And he has this power. And he has this accessibility. And so they want to know, hey, we want to have something to do with God. And it seems like talking to him is a big part of that. Can you show us how to do it? Teach us to pray. And so Jesus does. And he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which we said earlier. He says a critical aspect of this is recognizing the one with whom we interact is already favorably disposed toward us. Father, you're pre-loved, remember? He's already interested. His, His listening is a vacuum that sucks prayers out of you. The fact that you want to pray in the first place means he's already paying attention to you. He shows his love for us, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this, not only that he gives us his word, but that he lends us his ear. He's a father. Prayer has at its core the desire to make God's name hold its rightful place in the world. Because when God's name is seen as lovely, magnificent, and wondrous, then people... And things get to live in the right order. Not cattywampus, sideways or upside down. And so he says, you ask for God's rule, the way it's done in, on, in heavens, that should happen on the earth. Let people be favorably disposed to wanting what God wants. And then give us the stuff we need, like our daily bread. And... To be cleansed because we have a boatload of shameful enterprises that we're suppressing and acting on, that we're aware of, and we can't forgive ourselves. Trying to forgive yourself, says Frederick Buechner, is like trying to sit in your own lap. And so Jesus says a primary aspect of prayer is asking for God to shatter the slate that would keep score against us and to help us to shatter the slates of the people who have wronged us and then not to leave us for one single minute. Lead us not to temptation. Don't abandon us for a second because we don't trust ourselves. And we know that we're too fragile and the world's too dangerous and our enemy is too fierce for us to ever for a second operate without divine assistance. So those are some of the sort of guts of prayer. And we've talked about those things before, and you've heard a million sermons about them. But what I'm interested in is the little story that Jesus tells, which you've probably heard before as well. 
Because just as important, really, as telling us what to pray is giving us a certain kind of permission for how to pray. In fact, if you're just told, say these words to God, let your prayers have these kinds of contents, this kind of framework, this kind of focus, if you don't have anything else, then probably you're going to pray in a very stiff way that bores the heck out of you, which means you won't be praying very much or very often or very expectantly, and it won't be any kind of joyful thing at all. And you sure won't do it so much that people say, holy cow, you pray a lot. Why is that? You won't. Unless you understand some of the things that Jesus says like this. Here's how you should pray. Here's, here's the manner in which you may approach God. Here is divine permission for you. You have permission. And this is what I want for you today. I want you to know that you have Jesus' permission to be bothersome to him. You have Jesus' permission to be bothersome to him, to bother him frequently about all manner of things. He says, suppose one of you has a friend. It's a far stretch, but suppose. A friend, a friend. He doesn't say lots of friends, he just says a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine's on a journey, has come before me, I've set, I have nothing to set before him. And you know how he's met. He's, he is prevailing upon the understood rules of hospitality in the ancient Near East. You don't leave a visitor high and dry. You don't turn somebody out from your house. You spend yourself to make sure they feel welcome, to feel like they are being extravagantly taken care of, and you've got nothing to offer them, and it's late at night, and how dare you be knocking on your friend's door, and yet you're doing it, and your friend says, the kids are already in bed. Do you know how my wife and I fight when the kids wake up and none of us sleeps? It's nightmare. These kids will never get back to sleep. You know you don't wake a sleeping baby. Don't you know the rules? I can't get up and give you anything. The door's already locked. My hands are tied. Now we're told that by commentators, an ancient audience would find even this story, even this excuse, incredible. Because it's such a violation. Of course your friend would get up and help. Of course the rules of hospitality would demand that you would help him out so he could save face with his visiting guest. But in this case, even a friend won't get out of bed. He won't let himself be troubled. He won't let himself be bothered because of friendship. But Jesus says, even though he won't be bothered because of friendship, he's not thinking in his head, oh, but he sat with me that night in college when my, when my boyfriend broke up with me. And, and he was always there for me. I guess I'll get up and help him. Jesus said none of those things from the past will matter to him. But because you had the shameless audacity or the boldness or the importunity, lots of different translations, to come and do such an embarrassing and bothersome thing, 
I will do it. He'll get up and give him as much as he needs. Jesus is commending this man who's put himself in a situation where his friend says, don't bother me. And Jesus is saying, that's the right kind of situation for prayer. That's the right manner. You need to think of this as being willing to bother God at any time about anything. It's a really helpful piece of advice. Because a lot of us spend our time listening to the perennial suggestion of the white witch to Diggory. Who said, you're all by yourself and the lion is far, far away. We live in a time when most of the people here around are suffering from a deep kind of cosmic loneliness. We're by ourselves. We have no help. And the lion, the Christ, God himself is far, far away. And Jesus says, "Um, here's who I commend. The person who's willing to bang on God's door at all hours for any manner of things because he's so desperate that he doesn't care if he's being a bother. She doesn't mind if she's overstepping her bounds, she just steps in there and asks. Do you know the story of George Muller? George Muller was a... He had a huge social media platform. He had a tribe of some 200,000 followers on Instagram. This is ancient, uh, you know, 19th century England, and he... Okay, he didn't have any social media, okay? The other congregation, even though it's earlier, they're a little livelier than you guys. He had care of a lot of orphans, lots and lots of orphans. And he had a theory where he would never ask anybody for money. He would just ask God because God said he'd care for orphans. And so he cared for tons and tons of orphans, But all he had to do was care for hundreds of orphans, fund the entire enterprise, feed them daily, and make sure they were educated, and make sure they were boarded. Other than that, he was a pretty free-from-responsibility dude. And he was asked at some point, because people were always curious about his prayer life. They were curious because he had all these stunning answers to prayer. How many hours a day do you pray? How much do you pray? And he gave an answer that's not dissimilar to all the people we talk about today in the church. He said, hours. I pray hours a day. I pray upon waking, and I pray throughout the day, and I pray upon sleeping, and I pray when I'm taking my meals. I pray throughout the day, and I've seen thousands of prayers answered. When I get in my head that a prayer I have would be for the glory of God, if I get it in my crawl, as they say, stuck in there, and I'm convinced that should God answer this, it would be magnificent for his reputation, and it would be beneficial for a great number of people, then I pray it until I get it. He violates middle and upper middle class orthodoxy in saying that. He does not understand the rules of politeness 
and that God has more important things to do than worry about your ingrown toenail or your troubled child. I mean, he's got racial tensions, and he's got world hunger, and he has conflicts in the Middle East, and Donald Trump, Donald Trump, how can he tend to your problems? But see, it's an erroneous, diminishing thing to say God can't care about this because God has big problems. That says God is easily distracted and has low capacity. But the reason that the Bible heralds prayer so much is because it has a different worldview than most of us functionally. It imagines that the world is presently spinning on its axis and that all of us continue to exist because God is saying so. There might be scientific explanations for what's going on, but behind those are the word of God who is sustaining all things presently. When you remove your spirit, they die and return to the dust. But when you send your spirit, things are revived. We believe that the whole world lives and moves and has its being in God. And so we have permission to bother him. We have right now a commendation of someone who's willing to do the impolite work of asking for a favor from a friend at an impolite time when everybody's asleep and everybody should be in bed. And yet he's bothering him. And Jesus tells you this on the tail end of saying this is how you should pray. Mueller said, most Christians just don't keep at it enough. They don't pray expectantly enough. They offer a prayer and then they're done with it. If this was surely a matter of volume or merely a matter of getting petitions there, then some clever person in our congregation who writes code for squid which is like 80% of the congregation, <laughs> could write a program that would just like, you could just put in your prayer request and they would just vocalize prayers to God through a computer all day and then we'd, we'd be golden. We'd have to fiddle with him. But apparently God wants us to fiddle with him. He wants us to do the often embarrassing and shamelessly audacious work of asking him for anything and for everything. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Do you ever wonder why, in our present world, where there is an increasing number of people who graduate college and they want to go into tech work or They might want to go into community development if they go to Covenant College. Or they want to go into various kinds of callings. The one calling I've never heard anybody say coming out of college is, I cannot wait to go work somewhere where I can raise money for that organization. I can't wait. I mean, I just, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, who can I ask for money today, Lord? And when I can't wait, I'm going to go get a job. And when they say, here's the salary, I'm going to say, no, 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 what are you kidding? You save that. 
I want to raise my own salary because that's fun. I want everybody to like me. So I want to ask people for money for a living. Because the people who do it are insane. we got like 20 of them in our congregation, and I love them. And I'm fascinated by this work. But you know what you have to do to do it? You have to be willing to be misunderstood. You have to be shameless. You have to be bold. You have to be willing to ask people for things and have them think, what's wrong with that guy? Get a job. And you're like, well, this is my job. You just got your... God's giving people money in all these different kinds of ways. This is just another kind of work. It's kingdom work of asking. But see, we don't think asking is anything. We think it's shameful. And Jesus says, I like shameful asking. I like it. I like bold asking. And what you'll find is if you start to give yourself to it, you'll get less shameful. I've noticed by observation when I've prayed with people and just by what I've seen in the world that middle and upper middle class people are pretty bad prayers. And a lot of that's by training. We've been trained not to expect much from this. We've been trained that's irresponsible, that the primary responsibility in the world that you have is to make good plans and to be on time and to work overtime and to save for your 401k and you will get no divine assistance in this. And so if there's something to be done, this is why Presbyterians don't have a, a keen reputation as being the praying group in the church of Jesus Christ. You ever hear anybody talking about, man, those Presbyterians, you ever seen them pray? Well, if you haven't been around Presbyterians and you've never heard anyone say that, the people who have been around Presbyterians have not ever said that. A lot of it is because we know that things should be done decently and in order. And we also wake up in the world each day where it's pretty functionally easy to live as if God doesn't exist. You're not counting on God to supply for you. You've got a job. You got money in the bank. You just need to work more if you need more money. You need to borrow, you got access to debt. If something needs to happen, you'll call your friend. You can't get in into the doctor's office? Well, you'll call the doctor because your buddies, y'all play golf together. You, your son needs a job? Well, just call your friend who owns companies and has a position to give jobs. You know a guy who can get you a car and a guy who can get your daughter work. You know somebody who works at that college, at that school. You've got connections. The more connections you have, the more resources you have, the more competencies you have, the less likely prayer will seem like anything to you. So you're going to have to try it out. You're going to have to think of it as an addendum and think, huh, I wonder if there was ever anybody who had more connections than me who was incredibly powerful, who could, say, walk on water and restore sight to the blind and give hearing to the deaf and and cause people who had seizures to stop having them and put them in the right mind, maybe who could defeat death and be raised from the dead and then ascend into heaven and rule all things with the power of his might. Um, I wonder if there's anybody like that who prayed disproportionately much. And then you'd have to say, oh, like, oh. So this isn't actually a function of how many muscles you've got or how many degrees or how many business contacts or how many clients. This is a thing that being the image of God is. You connect with God 
you unburden with him and you're bothersome with him and you expect him to do stuff. And this is one of the ways that things get done. I want for you to learn this. I want for you to, to know you have permission to be bothersome to God because he's invited you to ask and to seek and to knock. And we start to say, yeah, I tried that. It doesn't work. I prayed and it, I didn't get it. They weren't healed. They weren't fixed. They weren't changed. And that's sometimes the case. The Bible does way more encouraging you to keep at it than it does of trying to answer why on specific instances your prayers aren't immediately complied with. It seems like it just wants you to come after God, to remember that the lion is not actually far away and that you're not actually alone. That you have a resource in the heavens, a father who is for you, who wants to answer. Andrew told me I better not open this. I think he played a trick on me. I think he might have done this. <laughs> this here is a cold, nope, it's hot, Coca-Cola. And I bring it, I don't usually use props, but I had it because I bought this yesterday. Uh, first time probably in 20 years I bought a Coca-Cola. I didn't buy it for myself. I don't drink soft drinks, even though it might appear that all I do is drink soft drinks. <laughs> and this I would like to hold up to you as a sort of a, a disappointing, uh, sugary monument to low expectations. And, well, that's it. Kathy and I were at the Walgreens yesterday and rushing in. We had forgotten to get snacks for the tennis match. And I was going in to get snacks, and a, and a homeless person, or voluntarily or not, I couldn't tell, they had on a nice backpack. So I don't know if they were in a voluntary situation or traipsing about or if they were involuntary. It didn't matter to me why. But they asked me, do you have any change? And as I often say, I, I didn't have change because I don't carry money, being the century it's in. And so I did say, though, hey, but I'll get you some food. I was going in to buy ourselves some food and some kids at school some food, and I'll get you some food. Do you want some food? And the the dude said, well, I'd I'd like a Coke. I said, well, I'll get you a Coke, but do you want some food, too? I'll get you some food as well. No, just a Coke would be fine. Okay, then. So I went in, and I had on my brain, I'm going to get this guy a Coke. I got a, this is like a, this is not a 20-ounce Coke. This is like a 180 (laughs) Leaders. <laughs> That's a heavy Coke right there. You could do curls with it. And I got our stuff, and I came out. And where's my yellow-backpacked friend? He's nowhere to be found. you got to be kidding me, I thought to myself. You know, I've got this gigantic Coke that's, like, making me walk funny. And I wanted to give it to him. He asked for it, Specifically. And I couldn't find him. And Kathy said, well, he actually came up to the door. And he said, tell that guy I'm not leaving. I'm just going across the street. And I said, well, he was leaving. That's what leaving is. Like, if you're not here anymore and you went somewhere else, I mean, in a lot of definitions, that's, that's leaving. So I didn't see him. I didn't know. I, couldn't, I looked across the street. I didn't see him over there. So now I'm stuck with a coat. So anybody can have it who wants it. But it reminded me, and I have no interest in shaming this particular friend. My guess, he had no reason to trust me. I, I don't know. Maybe he thought I wasn't actually going to get him a coat. 
And I wouldn't even share the story if I knew his name and you knew his name, but you don't know him, and I don't know him either. But you know, it does seem to me that this is a pretty good example of kind of like some of our praying. Well, we just, we know we ought to pray, so we do. We throw up a few half-hearted ones. So I'll take a Coke. But we don't wait around to see what God might do. Our heart's not in it. We're not giving ourselves to it. We're not expecting that there's going to be Cokes coming. So I'm going to stand right here at the door and wait for my Coke because I asked for a Coke. God wants you to have the permission to be bothersome. And he wants you to pray and actually expect that you're talking to a good father who when you ask him things is not going to be unresponsive. He's not a trickster and he doesn't invite your requests so that he might, like an evil villain played by Will Ferrell, so he might laugh at you, so he might scorn you, so he might hold you in contempt. He says, I'm like a good dad. And I don't trick you. You don't say, can I have some warm hot chocolate, please, Father? And I'm not going to give you kombucha tea when you ask me for hot chocolate. You're not going to ask me for a hamburger and get teeth-breaking kale salad. I give good gifts. It's a joke, kids. If you, you know, it's a joke. What I want for you is to know you have permission. And what I want from you now is a commitment. A commitment to be bothersome. A commitment to bother God specifically for teenagers in our congregation. People who are almost human but not quite. I love you guys. People that we've tethered ourselves to through baptismal commitment, as Jelly was saying. People that we want to expect God to give his Holy Spirit to, to cause personal Pentecost to well up in their lives. It's a dangerous and lonely time to be a teenager when the foundations crumble. What can the righteous do? And we're at a time... In a a sense in which people haven't customarily done, where kids are being breathing in an air, where you don't even know, are people men and women? Does that even exist? Is gender fully only a construct? Is there any such a thing as biological sex? Is there there a God? Am I self-determined or am I determined by a relationship with the one who made me? Is God involved in the world? Or is it for me to figure out, am I purely the result of my desires? Do I self-identify and decide what I am? Or does someone else decide who I am? Because it makes all the difference in the world. If I'm merely what I can think of myself, I'm destined to being tortured inside, deeply conflicted, constantly a wreck. But if I am someone else's idea, if I'm the idea of a good father who thought me up, who has intentions for me, who is arranging and rearranging all the aspects of my life to realize his 
his remarkable aspirations for me to make me fully human like his son Jesus, fully self-forgetful, fully unburdened in trust for him, fully monumentally self-giving to others, not ruled by my own desires, but permeated by his. But Jesus envisions prayer being a part of this. Epaphras is constantly wrestling in prayer for you that you might be mature and fully assured. I pray all the time, says Paul, that you may grow in the knowledge of God and may be strengthened according to his power in your innermost being that you might live lives worthy of God. Nobody in the Bible envisions this delicate and remarkable task of raising humans, which is not just for parents, single people. It's for our community. We're shaping each other. And it can't be done without bothersome prayer. So I want you to do it. Yeah, you hear that? And here's my secret aspiration, which is no longer secret. After I say it, if you'll commit to praying regularly for a student, you'll commit to saying, this is something that's going to be regular for me. My guess is you'll start praying for more than just that. My experience is the more I pray for, the more it occurs to me to pray for. And it's an especially wonderful thing in a time when things are so disenchanted. There's a magic to it. That's why old Halsby called it the the magic of intercession. And he was an old Dutch dude, and he used the word magic. So don't write me and tell me about the devil. I'm using literary terms here. Sometimes people write me from the chat. Have you ever read a book? The Sorry. I don't even know what I was saying now. There's a magic to this when you start to pray then you walk out into the world where you realize that God's up to things and that we're collaborating. God, what are we going to do together today? That's how Dallas Willard describes prayer, talking to God about what we're doing together today because God has serious work for us as mothers, as professors, as coaches, as lawyers, as construction workers, as plumbers. He has work for us as students And we can't know what it is until we're shamelessly asking him and expecting him. And my guess is if you start asking for God to make somebody know him who's a kid, you also might start asking God to be at work in helping y'all meet your sales quotas for the quarter. And then you might start praying for racial strife, and you also might pray for that new car or new-to-you car because your transmission's out and you don't have any money. Because you'll start to see God is magnificent and he's involved in a whole lot of things. A few years ago, I was at the Mountain Opry, some 20 years ago, probably 25. And there uh, there was a guy I knew named Cecil. You don't know him. It's not the Cecil. Grab it around here. Another Cecil. And at the Mountain Opry there, he was eating himself a, a prize hot dog. Had no kale on it. But it did have plenty of copious amounts of coleslaw, which I also don't care for, and relish and ketchup and mustard. It was a disaster. And he was, he was into it. And he looked at me as he had taken a bite of that thing, and it's a, it's a sloppy affair. And he said, ha! You know what the best way to eat one of these here is? And I said, no, Cecil, I sure don't. 
And he said, by yourself. Because <laughs> that way you ain't got to let anybody see it get all over your face. My guess is, if you've got your own secret shame, if you're overwhelmed, if you're scared, if you need stuff and you don't know how to get it, and you're feeling desperate, or even if you're not, but you're just feeling meh, that you need to know that God invites you to some shameless praying by yourself, where it can get plenty messy, where you can be plenty impolite, where you can speak as honestly as you know how, to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of this God who is inviting you to ask and to seek and to knock. He's not trying to trick you. He wants you to know him who already knows you. He wants you to bother him who will never be bothered by you. The question for all of us is, will we actually take him at his word? I hope so.